I'm Chris Nessie, host of Behind the Mic, Voices of the EPN, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I'm talking with Jeff Eichler. He's an author and a coach and so much more. You've heard him on this podcast as we've talked about different topics, as if we were sitting on the park bench someplace or or something like that. You know, and today we're talking about Jeff. I was like, wow, he's been on the show a lot, but we've never talked about him, and he's got such a cool background. So good stuff. We're talking about teaching, publishing, writing, podcasting, coaching, and of course, fishing. <laughs> cool stuff today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. And then, by the way, before you go, it'd be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and uh, left a review. You know, what do you think? Could you say a few nice words and maybe five stars? Hmm? <laughs> That'd be so cool. You are awesome. Enjoy. The show. It's the education podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dr. Steve Milletto. Jeff Eichler is the director of Quetico Leadership and Career Coaching. He works with leaders in all aspects of life to identify and overcome obstacles in their desired future. He came to the field of coaching after a 35-year career in educational publishing where he served as an editor, marketer, and eventually the head of all publishing disciplines. There he was first exposed to coaching. As a client, self-awareness and realizing that leadership is behavior in the service of those doing the work. Prior to his career in educational publishing, Jeff taught high school American history and government. Jeff currently hosts the Getting Unstuck Cultivating Curiosity podcast, which focuses on looking at the familiar from a different angle and the new with an open mind. Jeff co-authored Shifting, How School Leaders Can Create a Culture of Change. Shifting integrates leadership development and change mechanics in a three-part change framework to help guide school leaders and their teams toward productive change. Jeff has a new book in the works, and maybe we'll get a chance to get him to talk about it. And uh, he also enjoys fishing. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for joining me today. Welcome to the show, and say hi to everybody. Uh, hi, everybody, Steve. It's so it's so good to be with you. Uh, it's a great way to end the week on a you know on a Friday, and um, it's nice to be on this side of the mic. Very cool. Well, it's- Thanks for joining me, and thanks for uh, um, being on that side of the mic, so we could we could talk. We've done a bunch of shows together and stuff like this, and I dawned on me. I'm like, hey, we've never talked about you, and it's like uh, you got all this cool stuff you got going on, and have done, and and we need to make sure we do that. Plus, we got this cool thing in common, which which is you're a history teacher, I was a history teacher, and we both like fishing too. And there's a lot of other things in between. There we there, go. So. There we go. Good stuff. The uh, um, all right. So let's first start by talking about you as a teacher. What'd you like most about teaching? What did I like most about teaching? I think the the first thing that comes to mind, Steve, I, I taught in an era um, when there was none of this end of end of course high stakes testing. The only test we had to give was a, a, a simple constitution test, the, you know, just the very basics of the the US federal constitution. But we didn't have this this pressure on us. We had a curriculum, we had standards, but we didn't have this pressure on us to be preparing kids for this test. And I really, 
I really thrived in that environment. I don't know how well I would do if I had to, if I had the, these big, these big tests staring me at the face. The other thing that I liked, at least when I taught, is I had a great deal of freedom as a teacher. And as I said, we did have, we did have a curriculum, which I actually helped write uh, for, for U.S. history. And, uh, but the real, the real goal of, of, of my course was helping kids to learn how to think. I had, I had no illusions that they were going to leave and no U.S. history, you know, front and back. But what I wanted them to do was to leave being able to think. And that's one of the things that really concerns me today about certain parts of the country where, you know, we have book banning going on, we have curriculum restrictions going on. And I, I don't know, my experience, Steve, was it, that's just not the right way to go with kids is that we want them to be thinking adults. And anyway, so that's what, that's one of the things that I, I really appreciated about um, my time in the classroom. That's cool. I appreciate you sharing that. Cause that's, yeah, it's one of the things, unless, unless someone's actually worked with kids in the classroom, you don't really get it until you're there. And cause there's nothing better than when, and it, you know, I've heard lots of people describe it different ways, but when that light bulb goes on and they kind of get it and they want to, you know, no matter, you know, they're not worried about looking dorky or something like this, they get into what you're talking about and it's like, wow, cool. You know, that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> It's good stuff. And it's I just have, it's having different expectations, you know, right. it's, uh, uh, so. No, that's cool stuff. I, you know, one of the things that, uh, I appreciated most about, uh, my past in teaching as well is that even though there was other stuff happening at the times, we, we still had a type of freedom to the, that we worked in the classroom. And so it allowed, uh, you know, the, the interactions and the kids to, to, you know, figure out that they might like this stuff too, even though they might not admit it to you until like two years after they finish your class. Exactly. <laughs> and I, I was fortunate, Steve, I don't know how your setup was, but I was fortunate to teach in a department. Uh, it was more of a fraternity than anything else. I mean, we just got along so well and we taught in classrooms that had a movable divider. Oh, so cool. we could open up and instead of working with 30 kids, we could be working with 60 kids. And which was very cool in terms of group work. We actually developed a risk game once around World War II. Nice. Where we used the, the black and white squares on the floor. Nice. And, and the kids played, they played out World War II, which, you know, you can talk about it, you can read about it, but it's still you, you try to operate a two front war as Adolf Hitler. It's like, okay, now I get it, you know? <laughs> yeah, that is cool. That yeah. would, that would have been a cool experience. That would have been fun, especially using the, using all the space to, to help you make it come alive. So absolutely nice. I I like that. I've had, I've had a couple of those moments in my uh, in my teaching where there were the the camaraderie and the the way you work together and stuff like that. That that so pays off when you're in a world like that. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Uh, good stuff. So all right. So let's talk about this. If you had a chance to go back in time to right before that first day that you taught you know, and had a chance to give you advice. Now I'm going to throw a lot of yous at you here in just a second. All right. right. So d done on purpose, but you know, so you had a chance to go back in time to right before that first day that you taught and had a chance to give you advice. What would you tell you before you set foot in that classroom? Oh, 
Well, one thing that comes to mind immediately is I would not teach it chronologically. Ah, cool. I don't think that serves kids well. I would, I would teach it thematically. I would look for some big themes and, and really look at, at the chronology. Um, I guessed, I, I guess vertically, Steve, you know, you look at certain events and you're tying events together that support a, a, a theme. But what I, what I would want kids to see is that uh, a, a nation has certain behaviors and, and some of those behaviors can, can repeat over time and they can relate to other behaviors. So that's one thing I would do is teach thematically. The other thing I would do, and you and I have talked extensively about this, I'd want to get the kids to the point where uh, their interests would be triggered in a certain topic that they would want to go and explore a little bit. In, instead of me directing everything, there, there could be something that they want to explore and own. And again, I think that's, that's something that helps generate interest on the part of kids is that you're, you're really saying what, what's of interest to you here. So that's, that's what I would do. I would do, I would tell you one thing, Steve, I would do a ton less homework than I did as especially in my early years, you know, because I was still of the mind in the early years that, Oh, we're going to learn us history, you know, and it, it, um, I've read too many studies that says homework doesn't really add up to anything anyway. So, you know, I might, I might change it, but I would certainly take the pressure off of them and the pressure off of me. That's, that's a great point. That's a, a I got to tell you, cause I, I would be the same. I was always trying to keep up with the, in the beginning when you, when I started, you know, there's a lot of trying to keep up with the Joneses. You look around the social studies department and go, well, what are they doing? And, you know, as you're trying to figure out who you're going to be as that teacher and, and so some of it, I'm like, I'm never doing that. Yeah, <laughs> and then, exactly. And then others kind of like, uh, oh, that's pretty cool like that. And matter of fact, what you're talking about with the thematic versus the, the timeline, I, um, I actually had a colleague in, I think I met her um, like in my third or fourth year who I'd never thought about it that way. And she introduced me to doing it that way, which was pretty cool. So, um, but you, you know, when you're influenced by, colleagues around you. I think that's one of the things that uh, people don't realize in teaching. It's really important to, <laughs> to choose your friends well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The The other idea, it's a variation on the theme of, of uh, teaching thematically. I had a wonderful conversation one evening with um, the late David McCullough. Oh, cool. Uh, I was trying to um, uh, entice him to become an author. This is when I was with the the publishing company. I was trying to entice him to become a an author on the program, and he he was he was working on another book, so he he couldn't do it. But boy, did he give me some great ideas. One of which was teach U.S. history backwards. Nice. Start nice. start with the present. Identify the themes that we see, and then work your way back and see see what surfaces when. You know. And it's a, it's, I think it's a, it's a much more interesting way to approach it. That it is, that it is. Cause that's one of those things that, uh, uh, when you do it that way, then you definitely get to the more modern time frame Cause you started there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Which I, I tried to race through history to get to world war two. That was my, my, my period, world war one and world war two. That was my period. And it wasn't that I, you know, I didn't think that 
talking about Jacksonian democracy or the Civil War was important, but I was just seeing World War II more as a watershed for the way the world is today. Gotcha. So I spent an inordinate amount of time on that. <laughs> nice. Well, yeah, I, I remember some colleagues who didn't even get uh, they they get that far and then they they go all right now I got to finish how to wrap up the rest of it and hop skip and a jump and suddenly they're in the modern era and it's like oh god yeah. you can't do that man you got to. <laughs> So you don't get to civil rights, you don't get to the Vietnam War, you don't get to Watergate, you know. Right, right. And there's so much there, and it's uh, and then now, it's like, uh, um, did you ever read the comics, The Far Side? Oh, all the time. <laughs> you know, yeah, he had some of the best ones talking about history. The teachers teaching U.S. history. All right, George, put your name down. You've got an A. We're good. We're, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's that's awesome. All right, so. Let's talk about, eventually your career path goes a different direction. I mean, I, I read in your bio, you had a 35-year career in educational publishing where you served as an editor, marketer, and eventually the head of all publishing disciplines. Talk about cool. All right, let's talk about that. So that, how'd that happen? And what, tell, Well, that I was guess. actually a pretty easy transition. I, uh, I moved from teaching social studies to actually working in the social studies department as the lowest form of human being in, in the editorial realm, you know, nice. it was, it was just short of get me coffee. Let me put it that way. <laughs> nice. But I learned, I learned the ins and outs of, of school publishing and um, it was, it was very interesting to help construct a book or, a, you know, a program with resources and that sort of thing. And yeah, so I, I eventually became head of publishing and, um, you know, it was, it, when I, when I first started out, Steve, there were, I figured it out once there were about 35 major publishing companies in the U S and when I finished, when I finished my career through consolidation, realignments and all of that, there were three major publishing companies still wow. left. Wow. They had just absorbed all of these other companies over time. And I was absorbed twice, wow. you know? <laughs> so, so the industry saw a great deal of change and now it's going the other way where we see a lot of small boutique publishers that are focusing on technology that are coming alive. That's cool. By the way, I did not know that I was in. It's when I when I read that in your bio, I'm like, oh my gosh, man! You're talking about royalty, man. We got uh, you're at the the top of the game, and 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 you know, with what you're what you're doing, you, you got to talk about what you like the best about what you did there. We talk about teaching. You got to talk about what you like about this because you didn't just stay there for a couple of days. <laughs> well, I think the the best part, the the most informative part, was that I got to work directly with administrators and teachers. Nice, you know. Um, I went from the classroom back into the classroom, but through a different door, if you will. And I especially liked talking with teachers. And it was very interesting to see how things had changed since I had been in the classroom. So that was that was a real plus. Also working with some real top-notch authors, as I mentioned, David McCullough. I never got to work with him other than having that great discussion that one night uh, about U.S. history and how he would teach it. But I, I got to work with the late Daniel Borston 
extensively. Oh my gosh. Who was one of, you know, our former head of the library of Congress and just a amazing writer, just what he could do with words. And so I think that was, that was really nice was working with, with authors when authors were still writing the books, you know, they weren't right. done by committee. They were actually, we hired people because they had a, they had a point of view. That's cool. That's yeah. cool. Now, now I know something that if I could go back in time, I would go back in time, find you and say, one day you're going to become the, the head of publishing and all this sort of stuff at this big publisher. And you're going to meet these guys and you have to go look up this guy named Steve Maletto and introduce him to, to, to um, Borston and to McCullough. So yeah, <laughs> um, I would say Dr. Steve Maletto. No, <laughs> too kind. But uh, uh, yeah, that, what a cool experience that would, that must've been to be able to have contact with the prolific yeah, writers um, and it, and also talk with people who, like you said, wrote the books instead of by committee. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, it was a challenge because, you know, you, when you get consolidated uh, from 35 companies down to three, everybody's worked for another company. <laughs> and because of that, everybody has the same way of thinking. And one of the most rewarding experiences I had, Stephen, this was toward the latter part of my career. I was asked by my boss if I would head up um, an innovation initiative because it was very hard to differentiate our program from other programs. Because again, we had all worked, you know, for other publishers. We did the same type of research, surveys, focus groups, and what have you. So we got to put together an innovation initiative, and I worked with a firm out of Israel called Systematic Inventive Thinking. And we trained over a thousand people in our organization on the on the innovation methodology. And it was very cool to see the types of things that we were doing um, that really helped us think differently about the books that we were putting together, the technology that we were putting together. That's so cool. I mean, that's what a... What I need to think is, and you know, it's funny that what you're talking about now, because now you do see new companies kind of popping up and, and, uh, but there for a while, everything was like almost hyphenated, like a million exactly. different words crushed together. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like, so this week you're what? <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, that's true. That's a great point, Steve, because customers could not keep it straight. They, they rarely knew us by our, our company name. They knew us by the cover of the book. Wow. You know, yeah. we, we use the green cover or we use the red <laughs> cover, you know, and it's like, Oh my God. You know, <laughs> that's funny. The only time that was great is when we were owned by Paramount. <laughs> we were actually owned by Paramount pictures for a while. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Did not yeah. Know, that's wild too. That, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah Cause it, it's funny what you're just saying, because I remember teachers a lot of times would say, well, we, are we using the blue book this fall? Or are we using the red book this fall? There you <laughs> go. There you go. <laughs> so that's hilarious. I never, cause it, that was all, and I was always kind of like, which book are you talking about? Which one do you think yeah. is the red one? And which one do you think is blue? One? Anyway. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Uh, all right. So we, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, um, the book you made. I mean, you, you wrote this book and uh, you were a co-author of the book Shifting, How School Leaders Can Create a Culture of Change. Why'd you say, I got to write this book and who's its target audience? So the, the audience uh, first and foremost was was school administrators and and teachers and the genesis of the book was really uh, from my experience in the classroom and working with 
administrators and teachers when 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 I was in publishing, but it was also based on my experience working in the publishing industry itself. And what I noticed was uh, people used to approach change. Um, we we used to call it the shiny penny syndrome, where somebody would read a book or somebody would go to a conference or they would read an article and all of a sudden we're doing X. And it's like, we're all running to this side of the boat and doing, and doing X. And then somebody else would have a wild idea and now we're doing that, but we haven't even finished with X. And the big problem that I noticed, Steve, and this was, this was true of the way our company operated too, is that we didn't have agreement on purpose. And you and I have done, we did a whole um, episode together when we talked about purpose. And if you agree on purpose, you can eliminate a lot of that, these, these types of changes that really don't have legs. They frustrate people. And so a lot of the book was dedicated to helping people formulate purpose. A lot of the book was dedicated to helping leaders be leaders. And we had this framework in the book. It's called the ARC framework, A-R-C. And the first part of that is assess. And what you wanted to do is assess yourself as a leader and assess your staff, your staff's ability to make a significant change. That's going to, that's going to lead to fulfilling your purpose. Then there's readiness. What kind of training do we need to do to support either the leader or the staff? And then finally, what kind of mechanics go into making the, the change itself? It was a much more deliberate process that, that than a lot of organizations are are used to and because it's change can be a kind of a sexy thing to people let's do this let's do that you know <laughs> and especially leadership they love to talk about the change and then they back out of the room and they're off into they're into something else right so this was this was a way especially to focus on leaders and say you got to make sure that you're of the right mindset to do this type of work before you can enlist your team and helping to define what it is that, you know, the type of change that you want. Does that make sense? Oh, that makes perfect sense. And I've read the book too. And it's an awesome, awesome book. And as someone who was a, who was a high school principal who, who was hired in different places to make change, uh, I wish I'd had your book first. So <laughs> but, um, powerful book, powerful. And there's, by the way, there's for the audience there, that, that that's not a paid endorsement. Okay. That's uh. <laughs> No money has exchanged hands for that, uh, but it's it, a very powerful book, easy to read and understand and follow. And um, for those of you who are thinking about, you know, this is the type of leadership that you have or you're going to step into that role. I mean, it's um, if you're, you know, wanting some form of guide, this, your Jeff, your book would be perfect for that. Yeah, it, it's really about, uh, it's really focusing on enterprise change, you know, big changes that you want to make right. that are, are going to keep you focused on your, on your purpose. So it's a, it's a slower, more deliberate process than some institutions want to go through. What's, and you know, what's funny about that, having experienced that, uh, I like to say that, uh, when the organization itself talks about wanting to make change, a lot of times they don't really know what that means. And they have this thought in their head. And what I discovered is that some people really want you to tiptoe through the tulips to kind of 
you know, kind of quote Tiny Tim here. If, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, whereas others really want you to be a bull in a china shop. And, you know, and it's, uh, uh, and it's the, the ones who want you to tiptoe through the tulips, they're the ones who you got to worry about because they don't really know what they're asking for or what it might look like. And I don't know that they've ever really thought about it. And it's just yeah. an interesting thing. So One of the superintendents I interviewed on the podcast, uh, Dr. Michael Hines, um, was hired by a, he, he was hired as a superintendent to bring change to a district. And when he started to, to institute these changes, his board basically said to him, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, nice. it was, we, we want change, but as soon as you start to make it, you know, it's kind of like Lucy with the football. <laughs> yes, very much. So really I'm going to hold it this time. <laughs> Yeah, right. Charlie Brown, don't fall for it. Uh, you got yeah, that exactly. right. <laughs> oh, that would be a terrible conversation to have as a superintendent. Uh, they ask you, what are you doing? Okay, I guess I didn't understand. <laughs> nice. Um, well, good stuff. Well, great book. And uh, I, um, it, it's it's awesome that uh, you guys were able to make sure that it uh, got written because it's it's something that's desperately, definitely needed. And all right, Jeff. So let's let's talk about your podcast. You have this really cool podcast. It's called Getting Unstuck, Cultivating Curiosity. Talk a little about what you mean by your podcast title, Getting Unstuck, Cultivating Curiosity. And somewhere in there, you got to make sure that because a question that you like to ask is, what are you curious about? So you got to make sure that you, you share that with us as well. Yeah. So the 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 semi short answer, Steve, is that Cultivating Curiosity is the third iteration of the podcast been at this a little over five years. It started, um, it started, uh, it was focused on, on organizational and individual change. That was the first iteration. And then when the book came out, my, my then co-host and I shifted it to talk about change in education. And when she left, because she was, uh, her responsibility as an adjunct professor just became too much to work on the podcast. So she left and I, I continued it. And, you know, I got to the point, Steve, where there are so many, uh, and I mean this sincerely, there are so many good podcasts on education. You're being one of the top ones. It was like, I wanted to take my show in a slightly different direction. It's still about education in the broadest sense, but it's, it's not always going to be focused on the administrator's office or the, or the school classroom, if you will. Oh yeah. And what I wanted to do was really to help people was to ask them to think differently about what they think they know. And um, maybe to, to look at some, some new stuff and with, with an open mind is the, is the, the way I put it. So the show is very eclectic. You know, I've interviewed um, uh, a woman who was uh, wanting to uh, discover the origins of the, of the French stew called cassoulet. And she did, but she also discovered a lot about her family. It was a tremendous memoir, but that wasn't her original intent. But what, what list, what listeners got out of it, they start thinking about their own family history, you know, and, and how, how it influenced who they are today. Uh, I interviewed uh, the, 
the principal investigator on the mission to Pluto. And that was, that was one of the, I have to say that was just a riot to be able to talk to him, to sit down and be able to talk to Dr. Alan Stern, because that was such an interesting mission. But again, it's like, well, why are we spending all this money on a mission to Pluto? And when you look at it, it's a, it's insignificant what we spend on space compared to other things and what we learn from space compared to other things. So again, it's, tr it's just trying to give a fresh perspective on some things, but it's, a, it's very eclectic, you know, don't listen to me because you want to listen about leadership or, you know, you want, you want this or that it's going to be very, it's going to be very different every week. Like I just did this four part series on my travels through Europe this earlier in the summer. And it was all about what I saw from a historical perspective and uh, what I hope to do there is is to have people think differently when they're when they're in their travels if they're fortunate enough to get to travel to look differently at how they view things and especially history because you know we often take for granted we walk casually through a memorial or something like that and I really dove into the details in that series. You really did, and that's it's so cool. That's because uh, you have this. Uh, um, you can tell you have this passion for um, the different stuff that you're talking about, like visiting uh, uh, memorials and so forth, and talking about the history that went on, and and it really comes out. And one of the things I really like is that you do have this. This is an eclectic podcast in that you have neat different types of shows that. Uh, um, like one of my favorites is the gentleman I and I'm drawing a blank on his name, but the he had. Um, he had some impact on the on the movie The River Runs Through It, um, and uh, that was yeah. It. He's he's a very interesting guy. He was um, he was hired um, as the fly fishing choreographer on the on the movie A River Runs Through It. So he got to work with uh, with Robert Redford. He was just in his late twenties at the time. Obviously, he knew he knew fly fishing, but uh, John Deach is his name and he did all the choreography. And when you see Brad Pitt, the Brad Pitt character hook into the big trout towards the end of the movie. And, you know, he's got his cigarettes tucked into his hat and he's flowing down the river. That's actually John. That's cool. Yeah. So he, uh, he did that scene a couple of times, but he was inventing a lot of this because uh, Redford would say, well, what are we going to do now, John? You know, and John, this, you know, 28, 29 year old has to say, well, here's what I think we should do. And that, that turned out to be an incredible scene when the Redford or not the Redford character, but the Brad Pitt character gets swept into the river. He's got his rod up in the air, you know, and he's still got the fish on. So. Yeah, he, that was that was that was pretty cool. He was, but he he's also a writer, Steve, and he's written he's written some, he's written a a beautiful book called Grace by Waters. It's it's a spiritual book. I won't say it's a religious book, although he does have prayers at the end of every chapter. But it's these are more what I would call spiritual, and it's a it's again it's of the, the you know the genre of fly fishing books where it's really not about fly fishing. It's about what nature does, the healing power of nature and, and, and the idea that when you're in that situation, how it can encourage you to reflect differently than you might otherwise. 
Love it. It's it's and that's it, it and that's what's cool is you get in these different conversations with these different guests that have all kinds of neat uh, sorts of backgrounds and you never know and uh, um, it just it, so many of them make you think about uh, some of the different aspects of uh, our life and it's it's really cool that you do that because it is definitely not you know you're not from each episode to each episode this is which is what I love you do um, it's not it doesn't have like the same. Uh, topic that's disguised behind whatever the person is that they do. Exactly. Yeah. And that's uh, part of that is just me, Steve. I'm curious about, you know, a lot of stuff and that, you know, to answer your earlier question, that's one of the last questions I ask us is what are you curious about? You know? And, um, I try to, I try to keep it to what's one thing you're curious about because uh, a typical response is, well, I'm curious about many things, you know? Which is so cool because that's and it and it comes out and it, it's neat to hear uh, your guests talk about that because it's like, you know, what what does make them curious and what, what makes a rocket scientist <laughs> or what makes you know a, a person who uh, uh, you know one of the one of the other episodes that I uh, really thought was cool was you had the, uh, the people own the inn, the, oh Kevin and Sue yeah. yes that was cool it's uh, what a neat. Uh, I've never been to that part of the country and it, it yeah you got to get up there it's so it's beautiful and that that inn is a special place it was Norman Rockwell's home you're walking into a museum nice and if you don't feel Norman Rockwell there's you're not alive because he lived in that house and now it's a now it's a country inn and there's a there's a red covered bridge just outside the inn that crosses one of the top trout streams in America. Wow. It's uh, you can't, you can't invent stuff like this, you know? No, that's so cool. It just, and they're, a, they're a delightful couple. I can imagine. And just listening to that discussion made me go, you know, I think I got it. I, I you know, there's a, there's a famous line from a movie um, that goes something like this. I have the need. I feel the need for speed. Why well, do I feel the need for going fishing up north in, in Norman Rockwell's house? There you go. There you go. <laughs> I love it. Uh, So good stuff. So uh, now that's, that's bringing me to something else. And one of the things that you do, your career, your career, you are a coach and you're the director of Quetico leadership and career coaching. All right. So the first thing you got to do is explain the name. Thank you, Steve. You're one of the only people who's ever asked me how the name came about. (laughs) I thought it would be, I thought it would be the thing that would get discussions going and people just like, anyway, Quetico, is a wilderness canoe park in southwestern Ontario. And when I was a teacher in Illinois, I used to go up there uh, at the end of the school year with my teaching buddies and my brother, and we would do wilderness camping and canoeing for a week or so. And there's no motors. You know, you eat what you carry in or what you catch. And you know, if it, if a storm comes up, there's no, there's no, uh, holiday in that you can, you know, run into for cover, you know, you're in your tent or whatever. It was, it was a great experience, but the, the name I chose Quetico because it was an area that allowed me to reflect quite a bit on who I was and what I wanted, because there were many times in the afternoon, you know, you'd be fishing, but you know how it is, Steve, you get into a canoe, you just lay back, you know, if the water's calm and you're feeling the sun, 
So there was that reflective aspect, but it was also a place of great personal challenge, physical challenge, mental challenge, because you could get on a portage. There were a couple of portages that were a mile long. And especially when we went up there in late spring, early summer, you're walking through mud up to your knees and you're surrounded by, by black flies and mosquitoes and everything like that. You can't stop because you need to get to the next lake, right? And when you get to the next lake, you're hoping that it's going to be calm, calm water, but it wasn't always, you know, uh, the wind could kick up as it did with my brother and myself once. And a, a what was usually a 15 minute paddle turned into a 45 minute paddle against the wind and three foot waves. So that's where that's why I chose Quetico because I wanted my coaching to combine both the the challenge that that people could be facing in their career and what they want, but also the opportunity to help them reflect. That's so cool, and and so you've kind of answered my my next thoughts about it because what I mean, what made you do it? I mean, what what made you pursue and set up Quetico coaching? I mean, I I mean, because uh, great, great question. It was actually my experience as a coachee. I was, uh, and I've admitted this in other places, I was a horrible manager when I first started out because I thought managers had to have all the ideas and that they had to, leading was you have all the ideas and people do what, you know, you're telling them to do. And I used to play, um, I used to play a version of bingo with people where I would have the answer, the answer, underline the in my mind, but I would ask people questions, often rhetorical, to get them to think about, well, what's in Jeff's head? As opposed to me saying, well, guys, what do you think of this? No, I played games with people, and I was eventually assigned a coach, and it was the, it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me because it really, I learned a lot about why I was leading the way I was leading, why I was managing the way I was managing and how it was not productive. And it really shifted my thinking about what a good leader should be doing. That's cool. That's very cool. It's, it's interesting when we reflect, um, things make us do that. And the, you know, the power of coaching can help you, uh, um, really figure in into things that you wish you'd done differently or that you could do or hadn't even thought about. And, Exactly. I love that. I, all right. So let's, let's go there for a minute. I mean, could you talk about why leaders should invest in coaching? I mean, cause it, you know, that's, that takes time and it, you know, you gotta, well, you gotta it's, you know, the, I, I, Steve, you'll probably remember this commercial. This was from, I think the seventies. It was the company was Fram F R A M Fram oil. And they used to sell quarts of oil and um, mobile had its oil caster had its oil for your car or whatever. And Fram's slogan was pay me now or pay me later. And the idea being you would pay a premium for Fram oil because it's going to save your engine. Well, it didn't do anything different than other engine oils, but it was that it was, it was putting that idea in people's heads that, you know, if you don't use Fram oil, you're going to pay for a new engine down the road. And all that to say, 
coaching is like that with leaders. You know, the, the team can't perform at its best. The department can't perform at its best if the leader isn't secure in what he or she is trying to do on behalf of those he or she serves. So high performance always starts with the leader. And every leader, every manager has blind spots and coaching can help uncover that. I use a lot of data when I do, when I do coaching, I have a great assessment that I give um, to, to leaders. It, it identifies um, where they fall on 16 validated predictive behaviors in the workplace. And it can really, it can really be eye-opening for people to, to see you know, if, if a certain skill, if you have to demonstrate, let's say, flexibility in your role, but you score very low on flexibility, you're going to be, you're going to not going to be the change agent that you, you need to be, right? So, Get that so right. I found it very useful to use data. We do a lot of uh, value identification, but the big thing we do is work on purpose. You know, what is it that you're trying to achieve that you want the department to achieve on behalf of those that you serve? That's, that's cool. I think a lot of times that's what uh, causes or derails things is, is the fact that we haven't really thought about what it is, <laughs> what our purpose is, what we're, what we're trying to accomplish, what it is. And, and so we're influenced too much by those shiny pennies or exactly. you're talking about earlier and stuff, which exactly. is, which is crazy. So good stuff. I, all right. So, you know, you set up the coaching practice, you, you do the coaching and uh, we talked about why they should invest in it. And so you talked a little bit about this too. I mean, if, if someone reached out to you right now and said, Hey Jeff, I really like to do uh, um, some coaching with you. What's that look like? When you, what's the session going to be? Well, the, the first thing that I try to get at is what do they want out of it? And invariably uh, people come to coaching and I, I use the analogy that it's like an onion that what they say they want to get out of coaching is that first layer of the onion, but it's not always what they really want to get out of coaching. Coaching can start about, um, you know, business issues or whatever, but underlying those other issues is often something deep in their personality or how they were raised or, you know, uh, uh, whatever. But I have no expectation that what, what, they say they want to accomplish in coaching is what really happens. And we gradually through discussions, question and answer scenarios, whatever we get it, what they, what is really holding them back from leading, behaving the way they want to behave. That's so cool. And it speaks loudly to, you know, understanding why we really should have some conversations and participate in coaching. Cause it's, I, th I think so often, a lot of times leaders think it's for everybody else, but not for me. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what? Every good coach has, has a coach. And nice. it's, it's, it, it's, it's a big help. I have one. And because sometimes you need a sounding board other than, in my case, my wife, you know, she's heard all these stories and, <laughs> you know, she's quick with solutions. I don't necessarily need solutions. What I need are, are really good probing questions, you know, open-ended questions. So um, we, we have to get people beyond the fact that they don't think that they need it. It's not something that says that you're lacking. It's actually a positive because it says, I, I want to, 
I want to see where I can improve my behaviors uh, that will better support those I serve. I love that. You know, it's, it's one of those things that I think a lot of times uh, people who are in roles, they don't realize how important it would be for people that they supervise. If they provide them, have somebody coach, you know, make sure they get a coach because there's so many types of aspects to it that, make it difficult for a supervisor to be a coach, I guess, is my point. <laughs> you know, because yeah. you, know, you might not be taking their advice. as In the back of your head, you're going, are they really looking at this as a weakness and they're going to you know, yeah, exactly. check the exactly. wrong box on my evaluation here or something? Yeah. That's such a good point, Steve. You know, that it's not that you can't do coaching as a, as a supervisor, you know, but I think it has to, you have to have a good track record for doing it. You know, if you're, if you're waiting with somebody and then all of a sudden you're jumping in with these open-ended questions that can, that can set somebody off like, Oh, what did I do? You know? Right. So coaching has to be a part of the normal discussion between employee and supervisor. That's a great point. Great point. Uh, good stuff. Well, I wish you the best with Quetico. That is so cool. It's what a powerful, uh, what a powerful mechanism that is for helping leaders uh, see what they want to do and become and their purpose and, and help them through situations or help them think about the future and so forth. Good stuff. Exactly. Love it. Uh, all right. So, you know, one of the things that uh, we're, we're getting close to finishing up, um, Jeff, and one of the things I want to make sure we do is if someone wanted to follow up and connect with you and or learn more, where would you send them? So they can go to um, criticalcoaching.com, the, the website, but they can also, if they just want to reach out to jeff.eichler at gmail.com, that's fine. Awesome. I will put that information in the show notes. So it's easy for them to find and easy for them to do. So good stuff. So I got a few last questions that I just got to make sure I talk about this because we haven't talked about fishing yet and we got to talk about fishing because you obviously have this, this passion about fishing. I like to fish, but, uh, I, I'm not as, uh, you know, I, I think the the fish in Florida and in Alaska are a little bit hungrier or at least dumber because they, they see my bait and they're able to catch them in Georgia. I got fish, you know, I, I've drowned a lot of worms and a lot of shrimp and things like that. And it's like, I don't know about that, but uh, so let's talk about fishing. Now, what, what, what do you like most about it? And why is it something that you like to do? Well, it does, it does get back to that idea of, of putting yourself of, of, let me say that differently, not putting yourself in nature, but realizing that you are always a part of nature. And it's a, it's a different mentality. When you approach a stream, a lot of people will approach a stream with the idea of, I just want to catch a fish. And, you know, I have to admit, you know, I was there in the early days, you know, with my fly rod, I walk up, you know, I want to catch that big trout, but now it's different for me. And it's, it's, when I walk up to that stream, I want to study the stream and think about where are these fish going to be hiding out because where, where will they be in the water so they don't have to expend a lot of energy? They're going to let food come down to them. And instead of casting wildly into the river, you're trying to cast where you think the fish are. And it becomes... Um, it, to me, it becomes much more interesting that then it it's to me it's not just about catching big fish um i'm i'm now more interested in the technical aspects of fly fishing especially with my casting and 
Uh, I was, um, this is kind of a growth story if, if we have time for it, Steve. But, go right ahead. Go right ahead. Um, I was, I was fishing in a, uh, in central PA on Spruce Creek this past July. And I had a guide with me and we, we both saw, we both saw the dark shape of a trout sitting next to a log and sitting next to a bank. So this is a very smart trout because it's positioned itself where water is flowing slowly towards it, but it has the protection of the, of the, of the submerged log, but it's also got the protection of the bank. I had about a two square foot area where I could put a cast if I wanted to entice this trout to hit it. And I did. And that to me was like, I didn't land the fish. He broke off because he was huge. And that's not a fish story. He was, he was huge. And we were using very small hooks, debarbed. You know, you take that barb off the hook so that it's very easy to remove it from the, the fish's lip. But I was really proud of that where I just dropped that fly right in and boom, he took it. So that's, that to me is much more interesting is to be able to read the water and also a lot of times not to miss the sound of birds, the, the wind going through trees, the sound of the water as it's wrapping around your, you know, your ankles and, you know, in, in, in your waders and things like that. So that's why I love it. It's just, it's very, it's very relaxing. And, and if it ever gets to the point, and sometimes it does, where I'm starting to focus more on catching fish, I'll go sit down on the bank. There you go. That's cool. That's very cool. Cause I, I, I'm there with you with the, you know, you, you go fishing. And one of the things I love is the fact that I'm in this different world. I'm not worried about emails. There you go. Phone calls or any of that type of stuff. And instead I'm trying to figure out how I can outsmart the character in the water. Who's trying to figure out how to steal my bait and run away. And uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, I love that feeling. And that's so cool what you're talking about. Cause that is, it's a neat feeling. I mean, I, I don't know how else to describe it. I, when you go out and you see, you know, I, I had the, over the last couple of years, I've had a good um, shot where the whole family went fishing in Alaska and a couple of times. And, and that was a, such a neat experience. Well, one of the things that happens when you're in that world is that you see things, you know, there's more animals there than lots of the other places where I am. Exactly. And uh, you see the, either see the bear or you see the evidence that the bear have been there, you know, the carcasses right. of the salmon or the marks on the trees. And, and, uh, you know, there, you might run into elk or moose and, uh, and, uh, beaver. I had a pleasure of sitting in a boat one time and we're trying to hit that hole where the, you know, the King salmon are and, and the, the guy tied up to this little embankment. Well, it turned out the little embankment turned out to be a beaver dam. The beaver oh, wow. came out of the thing, swam out towards the the boat, and slapped its tail on the water, and just bam, bam, bam. And my guy's like, "We got to get out of here because it's annoyed yeah, that exactly. we're here." And and exactly. uh, but and, and then to be surrounded, you know, in, in that part of the world, uh, I, I grew up in the in the seventies. I was a little kid watching cartoons a lot of times on Saturday mornings, and uh, one of the things I used to do was a PSA. Um, for saving the bald eagle, the American bald eagle, because it had so many die from the pesticides that had been used. Right, right. And uh, I'll never forget that because having to, had a chance to be in 
out there in Alaska, the, the number of bald eagles that you see everywhere was just, I mean, and babies too, was just amazing. And you notice that, I mean, I had a blast fishing, but I also, the, the world that you're in is like. Exactly. Wow. And I, it's, that's cool what you're describing there. You, you, I got to go fishing again. <laughs> Some, someday I'll get up there. There you go. Got to do it. Uh, but yeah. I mean, you've been in some really cool stuff. And I, I brought that up because I got a chance for the first time ever to fly fish when I was in Alaska. And right. and they teach you if you don't know how, and, and I don't know. And I'm still, still not sure I know how, but the... Um, but because you specifically, when you get a chance to go fishing for sockeye salmon, you can only catch them by fly fishing. And if you snag them accidentally, like by the dorsal fin or something like that. That happens. Right. And you have to pull them in and then release them You know, to keep them because you snagged them like that. And it's the most frustrating thing. It takes you 20 minutes just to get them on shore just to let them go. Yeah. Because <laughs> you yeah. snagged them the wrong way. So good stuff. I, all right. So if you could go anywhere to fish, where would that be and why? Well, Alaska, I think would be would be the the one place I'm going to Montana in a couple of weeks, uh, fishing the Missouri, and then my father in law and I are going uh, back down to Argentina um, in early December. It's their summer, it's their spring, nice. and so we'll be fishing down there. But I I would like to get up to Alaska at some point. Very cool. Well. I got to tell you, it's, it's, it's worth it, especially with the, your love of, of being in that the environment as much as the act of fishing. It's, it's definitely worth it. So kudos, uh, you know, all right. So last one for you, when you talk about fishing, is there that one time or that one event that you will always remember? I mean, could you share it with us? Okay. That, that one fish story is what I'm asking. What's that, what's that one yeah. you got to share? Well, that's, that's, that's a, a fish story that at the time I wasn't proud of. But, but it was a great learning experience. I hooked a very big rainbow trout on a stream that was no, no wider than five feet wide. And these, these big fish will hide out in those waters. And I hooked him and he took off downstream. And unfortunately, I didn't follow him. I was playing him where I had hooked him and he was, he was down. Well, that just magnifies the pressure on the line. And after about 15 minutes, um, you hear that sound you never want to hear, which is, yes, you know, just the, yes. the line snapping. And then it's just kind of waving in the breeze at you. Like, oh. And it just, I, I was at that stage in my life where I looked at it as imperfection that I couldn't land that. And since completely changed how I think about fishing and, and what I could learn from that experience. And so that's that, you know, I, I wrote a piece called letting go of the one that got away, you know, where I, I tried to finally put that nice. to rest. And the way I did that, um, my wife and I were uh, in Italy and we went to see the last supper and the thing about the last supper that, you have to understand is that he used a very imperfect method of painting. Um, and the, the paint started to fleck off almost instantly. Wow. And after 500 years, there's about 25% of the painting that's still left. Conservationists have, have painted in the, the rest of it. So when you get up as close as you can to the painting, which is about maybe 10 or 15 feet, you can still see the flecks, of paint there, but there's, there's very little of the original 
painting there. And all that to say is, if he could use an imperfect method, why can't I be imperfect, right? If yes. this master of painting can be imperfect, why do I have to be perfect? And that's really what helped me overcome that. That is a powerful statement because it's hard to get over some of that stuff, especially when you got like what you're describing and or you got it right there next to the boat or you're, you're kind of like, you know, you're telling everybody and you know what's going to happen because everybody's going to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to get bigger every time you tell a story and you're going to like, no, it was really it was like this big and it's right. Yeah. <laughs> so it does. That's cool because that makes yeah. so much sense because it is, it is one of those things that uh, <laughs> you, have kinda, you have to figure out how can I get over. <laughs> get, yeah, because it doesn't serve you not to. Right, right. It's, unless you're out for the, you know, the giant, you know, whatever it's that, 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 that giant catfish that exists in that hole or whatever it is, you know. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for sharing your world with us. Teaching, educational publishing, podcasting, shifting, focusing, coaching, and fishing. What an awesome world you have. And I appreciate you taking time to talk with me today. Steve, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And, uh, I'm looking forward to the next time we sit on the park bench together and, and, and crank one out together. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.